1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Today on the pod, after numerous complaints of public disorder and safety issues, council works towards moving a Yale Town overdose prevention site. We'll have the latest. Plus, as the talk about provincial police force continues to grow, what's the chance the BC government is actually serious about moving forward? Plus, a Chilliwack resident's pickleball hunger strike now stretches into day two. We'll get an update. And after enduring a two-hour border lineup. And exorbitant prices, Talia Miller, our show's chief Swifty correspondent, reports back from the Taylor Swift concert in Seattle. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's discuss the Yaletown Overdose Prevention Site. Now, we learned recently the City of Vancouver informed Vancouver Coastal Health that the city uh, would not be in a position to renew its lease at the Yaletown Overdose Prevention Site. The Yaletown OPS is one of the most uh, sorry, most used overdose prevention sites uh, in the city. It's located at 1100 Seymour Street. Uh, it provides on-site monitoring of people using drugs. Now, there have been numerous complaints of public disorders, strewn needles and safety issues as well. Uh, the city has been provided images by residents uh, that say that, look, they see people injecting themselves in the open. Uh, there's litter in front of the building, all those types of complaints. Nevertheless, now advocates say that these overdose prevention sites are needed response to the drug crisis that has seen thousands of British Columbians die from toxic illicit supply, of course. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Christine Boyle. She's a Vancouver City Councillor from one city, Ms. Boyle, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, A a very difficult uh, conversation to have because many people have said, look, we need this site. Others have said, look, uh, we don't believe it fits into this neighborhood because of the complaints that we received. Your thoughts, first of all, in regards to Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, informing Coastal Health that they would not be in a position to renew the lease. Uh, I found
2: the news really heartbreaking and I've been calling for the mayor, Mayor Sim and the ABC majority to renew the lease until a new um, alternative site in the neighborhood is found. So the Yaletown OPS site was opened in 2021. Um, it, It was opened there because that neighborhood had the highest number of drug poisoning deaths outside of the downtown East side. And so it was open to meet a need within the neighborhood and it's, been meeting that need to uh, to keep people alive. Mm-hmm. Um, if we lose it, uh, very likely more people will die. And, you know, and as well, if we lose this facility, people in the neighbourhood won't have a place to go. It will make the challenges that we've been hearing from the neighbourhood about uh, even worse. So mm-hmm having having no facility uh, is a is a significant step backward both for people who rely on this life-saving space um and also for the neighborhood and this mayor and council needs to take that seriously and uh and put solutions on the table
1: mm-hmm. now are most of the ops sites in the downtown east side I want to confirm that
2: uh yes yes this was the um certainly the the site that has gotten the most attention outside of the downtown east side and because of its heavy use we what we actually need is a larger site there um and we also need provincial support to provide the sorts of wraparound services that uh that help life-saving facilities like this better integrate into the neighborhood so uh, i've been pushing for all of those things to make sure we're supporting people and keeping them alive and improving how Um, services fit into neighbourhoods as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter Meisner, uh, Councillor Meisner, uh, was on the Jill Bennett show earlier today. Take a listen to what he had to say.
0: I field several emails a day uh, from neighbours who are concerned about uh, how uh, things have uh, quickly deteriorated outside the site. Uh, So that's everything from uh, needles, uh, camping on the sidewalk, uh, fights, uh, street disorder, uh, garbage, uh, drug paraphernalia, uh, and it is an area with a lot of families. It is right across from the uh, park there. And uh, there's a, there's a lot of uh, community members who don't feel comfortable uh, walking perhaps on that side of the street uh, with their children. So uh, a lot of uh, community concern, and we've been doing what we can to try to work with the operators of the site. Um, but I think uh, we've realized that this is just not an appropriate location
1: for the OPS. What do you say to the uh, key comments that uh, Mr. Meisner made there?
2: Yeah, look, um, there were absolutely challenges at this site. And I also hear from concerned residents all of the time about the the thousands of people who are dying from the drug poisoning crisis. 3,000 people in Vancouver since the province declared a a province-wide drug toxicity crisis back in 2026. So um, this site is keeping people alive and taking it away won't solve anything um it will lead to more drug poisoning deaths uh and and more street order because people won't have a place to go so um what i've been hoping to hear from councillor Meisner and abc is what their solution is you know they have a super majority on council what's the plan mm-hmm. um besides just losing this space and uh and likely seeing more deaths and and more people on the street.
1: Now, I was reading uh, from past news articles that the the site was averaging about 40 visits per day and then it went all the way up to 100 visits per day. So certainly uh, it was well used. Uh, Could these individuals not use the sites that are already in the downtown east side or is there there stigma or challenges in regards to people going to the downtown east side to visit those OPS sites?
2: Yeah, there's a whole range of reasons um, why people access services um, in their own neighborhood uh, and why some people might not want to go to the downtown east side to access a service there um, what we know from studies and from health experts is that these services are uh, are needed in a number of neighborhoods and certainly the numbers showed that if they were needed in this neighborhood um, and uh, and it's meeting the need people are using it and um, and they're they're have a much higher chance of staying alive as a result. So, you know, it's working. We need to manage the impacts in the neighborhood. We need to look for a larger space is is what I keep hearing from the experts. Um, Mm -hmm. But shutting it down would leave a a lot of people in a lot of trouble.
1: Do you think if the city working with uh, Coastal Health, working with police, dealt with some of the you know, the more visual uh, elements. What I mean by that is just people putting tents outside, maybe needles, Uh, the sense there's a a lack of security. Uh, If they dealt with those issues in and around that site, that 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 site perhaps would not have to move? I mean, you think this is partially just a case of just maybe cracking down outside, like you see tents up. I've seen some of these pictures where there's tents and there's a sense of disorder outside, never mind inside, that perhaps dealing with some of those issues may not have led to a push by residents to say, shut that site down?
2: I think I think it would mitigate some of the pushback from the neighbourhood for sure. And the city has been uh, funding cleaning and security monthly for the site. Um, That's where we actually need provincial help. Uh, Those types of services aren't included in the the healthcare funding for the site, and we really need them to be. We need uh, that funding model from the province uh, to Vancouver Coastal Health to um, include support to make sure that services are well integrated into the neighbourhood. Um, And also, like I say, we need these spaces, they're they're saving lives and so um both of those are true at the same time. We can't lose the space and yes, we should keep working to make sure there's um the supports exist. You know, part of why I have been advocating for a larger space. My understanding is right now um people coming to use the the facility um don't have anywhere to wait, if they're waiting their turn, there's no space to Sit and rest a moment uh, before they leave. And so that's part of why we see more people um, on the sidewalk and actually uh, providing a, a larger space with more supports would help those folks who depend on the service uh, and serve the neighborhood as well
1: do you think it was a mistake and what i mean by this i'm not it's not a debate about overdose prevention sites but downtown has changed as well in regards so we've invited families to move there live there play there Uh, you've got professionals who live downtown that moving or putting an ops site in the yale town area was never going to work just because of those families that are there professionals that are working in that area, they are not going to accept disorder on the sidewalks outside. They're not going to deal with needles in their neighborhood. And that they are going to, um, you know, pressure those elected officials that this thing has to move. That inevitably, we may talk about uh, these sites. We may inevitably talk about providing drugs to those who need it to save lives. I do not question anything you have said there. But ultimately, those individuals in those neighborhoods like Yaletown say, not here. It's not going to work. We don't want it. Uh, and perhaps number one, maybe that wasn't the right location.
2: You know, I, I don't think so. Um, uh, these services are needed in every neighborhood and, mm-hmm. uh, and this service was opened in Yaletown because there, there was clearly a need for it. People were dying. Um, and people who use drugs have families, families, um, uh, our professionals as well, you know, the the um, the range of people who access the service are um, really quite a bit more broad than people might understand. And, uh, and we need to provide these supports everywhere where people need them. And the numbers were showing that, that they were needed here.
1: Ms. Boyle, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Now, no doubt uh, you've heard about the Chilliwack couple who promised to go on a hunger strike. They're, of course, protesting the opening of pickleball courts after they moved into their home because they said there was no consultation from the city. Now, imagine living with this sound every day outside your house. Uh, And and as you hear it, you'll get a sense of what it's like for that family. We want to check in with Rajneesh Dovan, a university professor. There you go. There's the sound. We want to check in with Rajneesh Dovan, a university professor who promised to begin a hunger strike in protest of that noise that emanates from the courts. The hunger strike was supposed to begin on Sunday. We thought we'd check in with him, see how he's doing. Rajneesh Dovan joins us now. Rajneesh, thank you for speaking to us today.
3: Thanks for having me, Jess. Uh,
1: you said your uh, your hunger strike was going to begin on Sunday at 9 a.m. This would technically yes. put you into day two. How are you doing? How are you feeling?
3: Uh, I'm okay. It's not the first time I'm doing this, so uh, it's uh, it's been what? What time is it now? Well, we're chatting
1: here uh, 20, uh, just after twenty-eight hours. Yeah, twenty-eight yeah. hours so far. Yeah. So yeah, yeah,
3: I've I've gone thirty-six before. So
1: you've done I'm thirty-six. Okay. What was the cause then? I'm just I have to ask.
3: Oh, that was just testing my enduring maybe, endurance. <laughs> maybe I was maybe I was preparing myself for this. Uh, <laughs> but that was way back in two thousand five. I was I was I was much younger then. Ah, there you uh, go. Well, I I I did a twenty-four hour before as a student uh, protesting uh, cuts in education funding. Mm. So so in India, it's a pretty, very common way of protesting.
1: Very yes. Way
3: of protesting.
1: Yeah. So uh, what do you hope to achieve here? I mean, what's the chance of pickleballers going away because you've gone on a hunger strike?
3: Uh, chances are not too bright, but we just want to be heard. We just want it... To let people know, and I'm I'm really glad that we have created a lot of awareness about this issue mm-hmm. uh, online uh, comments. I mean, there's a lot of hate there as well, but there are a lot there's a lot of support there as well, and all the supportive comments seem to have uh, done their research based upon what we are saying, and. Uh, And I've always uh, contended this, that we are not against the sport of pickleball. This protest is not against pickleball. This protest is not against people who play pickleball. Mm -hmm. This protest is not even against the space on which these courts are, uh, that these should not be used for public, uh, you know, for for recreational purposes. It's the way the whole thing has been handled by the city right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in in the process, treating us uh, not fairly and justly. The way they treated the other citizens of this uh, city—that mm-hmm. is what the protest is about.
1: Now this, it's not. This was yeah. brought in. The pickleball courts were brought in after you moved into the facility.
3: Absolutely. Uh,
1: so the the you believe the consultation with residents? Um,
3: there was, was no consultation with residents. So uh, just no. in
1: regards to distance, how far away is the court from your home, roughly in feet or whatever?
3: So the closest the closest court. So there are three of them. Mm-hmm. So the closest coat from my home is uh, less than from the from boundary is about five seven meters. Wow! And from my bedroom window is uh, about twenty maybe twenty five meters.
1: Now other That's municipalities it. have much bigger buffers, do they not?
3: Uh, no, it won't work because uh, I have I have given this uh, evidence. I have done a lot of research on it once I started complaining about it. So, uh let me give you a little bit of a backdrop. 2017 we bought this house. This space was a green space at that time. There was nothing here. And then in 2018 they put up a plan uh to make a sports facility and a children play area. And I went to that meeting. I said, put the children play area next to my house and the sports facility a bit where the children area is now. Uh but that sports facility was not supposed to be pickleball. It was they showed us basketball and uh, and uh, ball hockey uh, sketches at that time. That was the plan. But then uh, one fine day, uh, one fellow is invited to uh, the city council to give a presentation on pickleball. Nobody else is invited. No consultation, nothing. And then they put the pickleball courts here and we didn't complain in 2021 uh, 2020 was pandemic in any case so we said 2021 people are coming out of pandemic we were, we were we were we were having problems with the noise but we didn't complain but by 2022 summer was when the whole thing really uh, started bothering me and i had to take uh, mental health uh, professional help and i had to take sleeping pills that's where i started complaining in august of 2022
1: uh, now, so my that's inters- when it started. So, my understanding is there is an indoor pickleball facility that's set to be completed in 2024, but that would mean you'd have to wait another year um, and put up with the noise. See,
3: I would, I would, I would, I would take that if the mayor would actually, you know, come out in the public and say we will do it. Because I've been given these dates earlier too. In in uh, in October of 2022, I was told that that facility will be completed in April of 2023. Hmm. Then in January, uh, late January, uh, Mayor sent me an email that they have started working on that facility, and uh, this the the repurposing of this place will start in this year, uh, which is 2023. Which of course we are at the end of summer almost, and nothing has started. And now they have put the date to 2024. So that's <laughs> you know what I'm saying here. Uh, it's uh, there is it's it's hard for me to believe. The uh, them right now unless they actually do it, but uh, you know it's been it's been like that forever. And uh, my my issue is very simple. On the website of Chilliwack Pickleball Club, they claim that they have the largest pickleball uh, facility, indoor facility in BC. And then there are other outdoor facilities where people are not being disturbed by pickleball. Why is the insistence upon using these three particular codes? I don't understand that. Uh,
1: Moving back to your uh, your core issue, which you, we talked about your hunger strike, just for a moment here, uh, how long are mm-hmm. you planning to go on?
3: Well, uh, I will definitely go on till thirty six hours. That's a, that's that's a done deal, and uh, I'll decide after that how I'm feeling. And so, uh, it started at 8, uh, 8.30 eight, yesterday, so I will I will uh, see about how I'm feeling at eight eight thirty. Maybe and i may may extend it by another 12 hours or another 24 hours i don't know
1: so I can't say right now. you'll make a decision by a tuesday morning and maybe extend it further but by I'll, by tuesday evening you you think you would have made your point
3: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh i'll probably no today's monday right so i i will i might extend it by another 24 hours i am not so sure uh i haven't felt I did feel a little bit of a nausea yesterday, but after that, it's been okay. Mm-hmm. Once I had some sleep, uh, we wa- I wanted to sleep here outside, but then it was a bit dangerous. Uh, so uh, about uh, I, I did get five or six hours of sleep at home, and I was back here on the courts at uh, 5.30 a.m. So do you think uh, it's too
1: dangerous for you to sleep out in the
3: courts? I mean, there are people here which uh, might... Uh, do some harm to you, well, if you're sleeping out there alone. So, um, I mean, I didn't want to take that chance. I mean, there's no security here, and it, yeah, I don't want to. I, I don't want to say that poor people are criminals or anything, but I don't want to take, I didn't want to take that chance. Mm-hmm. So, once it was really dark and everything, so we went, we went inside, and uh, yeah.
1: So, just to confirm, another 24 hours, probably for with your hunger strike, and then you think you've made your point.
3: Yeah, 12. I mean, I don't know. I, I said, as I said, I'll see how. I mean, I, uh, how I'm feeling uh, at the end of the day. So uh, I'll I'll take a call after that. All right. Well, so, thank but, you. But but maximum. But maximum. It will be. I mean, I'll probably yeah, Tuesday morning or Tuesday evening. Right. I think I would have made my point. I think. Yeah. I think. I think I have made my point in the sense that I see a lot of people uh, doing a lot of research, a lot of Google research and, and, and then posting comments online mm-hmm. based on that, on that research. And this was the research I've been sharing with the city consistently, but they don't listen.
1: Rajneesh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, let's talk about our rental market here in Vancouver. Uh, It is, well, absolutely crazy. I think that's an understatement probably. But when you have to pay, on average, $2,800 per month for rent, you can see the tremendous amount of pressure it puts on um, people, individuals and families as well, to find a place uh, in Metro Vancouver. Some are even advocating for rent control. Joining me now is Marie Martin. He's the Burnaby co-chair for the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now, or also BC Acorn, and we wanted to chat a little bit about rent controls with him today. Marie, thank you for joining us today.:
4: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Uh and now you've talked uh, in the last little while about bringing in rent control or working towards some sort of process that sets up uh, rent control in this province. Uh, why do you think we need rent control?
4: Uh, basically provincially like you know I, I, like you were just saying there's a there's a massive crisis especially a rental crisis and mm-hmm. you know we've got increasing numbers of homeless people like here in Burnaby. Uh you know before the year 2000 it was very rare to see Homeless people now. It's you know it's it's everywhere. It's in every municipality in BC, um, and the the current what the government well the last two governments have been doing just isn't working. And they're they're focused they're focusing on just don't rock the boat, keep building market housing, mm-hmm. and that's going to fix it. And we've been doing this for you know like this entire crisis, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so we're, we're part of our provincial platform is focused on like immediately one thing the government can do is enact rent control tied to the units instead of tied to the tenant because we're getting a, a massive spike in, uh, you know, in, in evictions because there's a huge motivation for the, the landlords to kick someone out who's paying, you know, 800, thousand or whatever for rent and they can jack rent up to two, two grand, 2,500 for the same unit. And the, the, The so-called fix for this a few years ago was rent evictions, but we were critical of that too because renovations is a symptom of the larger
1: problem that we need rent control. So Marie, just just to confirm right now, so uh, look, if you had a tenant, let's say for five years, uh, you were basically, by what's a, what's occurred over the last little while, particularly with COVID, each year the province says you can raise the rates by an X amount uh, a percentage, so 2%, 1.8%, uh, they come out with that, and that's the maximum any landlord can raise rents. But once somebody moves out, that landlord can basically decide, let's say you're paying Uh, $2,200 a month. If you move out, the landlord can reset that rent and say, you know, wait a minute, things have gone up, it's more expensive, I understand the market's moving forward, I'm going to ask for $2,600 per month. Under rent control, you wouldn't be able to go from $2,200 per month to $2,600 per month when a a tenant moves out and a new one potentially could be coming, and you couldn't ask for that. Yeah,
4: exactly. So, so, right now, you know you're in a lot we especially acorn members, we're, we're low and moderate income people, and our members are facing a massive massive uh, uh, increase in evictions the last few years, just like you know, especially since COVID started during covid, the so-called uh, eviction ban, which wasn't really an eviction ban. Lots of people got evicted mm-hmm. during that. Uh, the main motivation is exactly what you're talking about because the rent the rent control has a massive loophole in it and it was probably designed like this. We used to have this full rent control or vacancy control where the rent was tied to the unit in BC We had it for eight years under two governments. The B.T. put it in in the 70s, and SoCreds kept it in for five, six years, uh, and it kept, kept the rentals down. And, uh, you know, we're not saying this is the entire solution. This is one part of the solution, but it's the most immediate part of the solution that can be done now. We've, we've just got an astounding... You know, I joined Acorn 10 years ago. Um, all the rental issues were almost all, you know, people facing lack of maintenance things like that in the building. If you go to an Acorn meeting today, it's like, yeah, my landlord's intimidating me, trying to push me out because they can double, triple the rent. And, you know, and, and especially it's really affecting a lot of older people, people who've been uh, in their units for a long time because, because the rent control is tied to the tenant. And then once the tenants out, there's a, there's a huge motivation for the landlords to evict people. So we're getting a lot of vulnerable tenants who've been, a disability or whatever, for a long time in the same unit, and the landlords are just are. are Pushing
1: them out more and more and more because they can get more and more and more money. But, Marie, here's, here's, I'll play, let me just bring this counterpoint to what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from, but if someone, let's say it's an investor, a person has invested in a condo, purchased a condo, they've got a set amount of costs, mortgage payments, let's say if they're on variable rate, it's gone up because of the present inflationary period that we're in. They also have to meet their costs. Uh, and one would argue these things may not get built, these rental apartments. Yes, they're market, market rates, but they may not get built if people like this who are investors aren't buying and aren't renting them out. Uh, how would we add more supply if these investors are not there to purchase these condos to carry the debt and then to rent them out?
4: Uh, there's vacancy control there's, there's many ways you can implement vacancy control you know you can implement vacancy control so it's like anything that's already built but mm-hmm. no new build will be vacancy controlled things like that
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, so so that you know if, if you implemented that vacancy control where anything built you know uh, after today mm-hmm. is is not rent controlled, that totally mitigates that problem but I, I don't know a single landlord who bases their rent on what, what their costs are. That's not how it works, right? There's no landlords base their costs on, on, uh, or the rent on. They, they base their their rent on what they could get, and that's the problem. Like you know, half in Metro Vancouver, CMHC just came out with a thing a few months ago, uh, talking about how half the condos built in, in Metro Vancouver are sold to investors.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, whatever, just say an investor. Uh, goes goes under, which is pretty rare, uh, well, that unit doesn't disappear. It just gets sold, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the whole point of the capitalist system, supposedly, is that, you know, you're supposed to be taking the risk. Well, it's basically, being a landlord is a very low, low-risk uh
1: well, I mean, they're still carrying a mortgage. My argument is, 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 the, is, the, is the is the landlord not, not the issue, but more so government getting out of the affordable housing business back? And I mean, you think, about, think back to the 70s, they were involved in the affordable housing yeah. business. They they subsidized, if you all go down Camby and Oak and many of those places, certainly in Vancouver, those three-story buildings were all built in a certain era for a reason. And the government is slowly clawed away from that. And it's taken us this long to get into this mess. It's going to take a little while to get out of it. And I, I get where you're coming from, but should we, rather than worrying about, you know, supply seems to be the issue, let's get more of these uh, housing, that more of this housing built. But is it really going to be about rent control or is it about getting more of this housing built so we don't, have, we're not in this problem? We don't have this problem.
4: Yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I totally agree. Like, you know, kind of a, one of the major roots of this problem is the austerity that's Come um, over the last forty years, mm-hmm. because governments don't want to tax rich people and corporations, you know, like they used to, right? So, um, and supposedly it was all supposed to trickle down and we'd live in paradise. Well, that that hasn't happened. <laughs> it's the exact opposite, right? No, uh,
1: no doubt. Now I'm looking and, at this, so, so that's why we have like
4: uh, our whole platform, Acorns putting forward, isn't just about vacancy control. But vacancy control is like the tourniquet, and then we've got a long-term solution, which which is about building uh, real social housing, like not. Not a lot of the uh, non-market housing that's too unaffordable for most people that we that are our members today. It's about building real social housing like we used to in Canada, and that involves federal government definitely. But there's lots of provincial government can do, and we've done it before here. It worked very well for eight years. Um, You know, but I I just want to say that you know, like the the mortgage that these these investors have, it's basically. The, when they invest in a place, the tenants paying the mortgage to their asset and they get to keep the asset. And then this overinflated bubble that real estate bubble that we're in is making, you know, like millions and millions, right? And billions. And mm-hmm. the the typical landlord, uh unlike landlord B C kind of puts out this myth that the typical mum and pop is your landlord. Well, that's just not true. It's twenty two percent of uh tenants rent from like a real mum and pop where that Landlord lives
3: in the
1: same building, yeah, basement suite or whatever. Right, Marie, Uh, we've run out of time here, my friend. I appreciate you you, you joining us today. We'd love love to have you in studio uh, soon again. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks a lot. This weekend, Swifties from across the Pacific Northwest joined thousands of Canadians to watch pop megastar Taylor Swift perform at Seattle's Lumen Field. There's no doubt Swift's two night era tour took over the city. Uh, Seattle made history uh, during night one as the 72,171 fans packed the stadium, making it the largest concert crowd the venue uh, had ever uh, held. Now, U2 set the previous record in 2011. Now, that was a Saturday show. With Sunday show, Swift became the first artist to play two consecutive nights at the stadium. And the back-to-back sellouts drew 144,000 fans combined. Once again, another record. Now, among all those Swifties was CKNW producer Talia Miller, and she joins me now. Hello.
5: Hi. How are you? I'm still coming down from the high from being I there. Can tell. The post depression con- um, <laughs> is so real. Like I felt very sad Sunday. I was like, "Oh, it's over." <laughs>
1: <laughs> what was it like just in it just uh, first of all just before the concert even began, you know, outside, the, what were you feeling?
5: I was a lot of excitement and anxiety because I've been a fan of her since I was in the 6th grade. Oh, and wow. I haven't seen her yet. So this was just a lot of anticipation, you know, and it was becoming more and more real as we crossed the border Mm -hmm. and then we get to Seattle and we're getting ready, you know, and then you see the stadium and you can see... Taylor Swift and it was just so honestly overwhelming but uh-huh. in the best possible way.
1: I do have to ask how long was the b- wait at the border before we start talking more you Taylor? You know
5: what? Only an hour and a half. <laughs> we left early <laughs> and an it hour was hour. it was consistently moving Okay, which was great and even one of the border guards was asking, she's like, are you guys going to a concert? And we're like, yeah. And there she was like, you're glowing. Have the best time. which just add to it.
1: Awesome. So uh, you're at the concert and this is your first Taylor Swift concert. Mm-hmm. You've been a fan for a long time uh tell me what the opening felt like
5: oh, it was gorgeous and it starts with it's been a long time coming which for me it has been it's been almost 13 years since I started yeah. like listening to her music and you know she kind of like puts little audio clips of her past like albums and it all just all the anticipation lines up as you can see she's about to like come off of the middle of the stage and the moment that happens uh-huh the screams in that arena
1: now, the cheering oh i i i've, I've w- watching some youtube videos uh, not only just the seattle uh, concert but other concerts uh, the, this, the, for this tour and uh, the the opening is fabulous in fact uh, we, y- you were we taped you right <laughs> yes uh, can we play that right this is like a listen to uh, talia miller's uh, for the first time seeing taylor swift as she opens the concert That's that, that you started. And what is about Taylor Swift? What is, because it's, it's you've got uh, adults there, in, you know, mm-hmm. well into their 50s. You've got people of your age. You've got young kids. You can see, like, you know, at 12, 13, 14 years old. What is Taylor Swift's pull?
5: You know what? I was thinking long and hard about that because mm-hmm. everyone asks me all the time, what is it about her? And I think it's the fact that a lot of us feel like she's speaking directly to us. Hmm. Like she has a, her songwriting. Just makes it feel like it's about your life because she pulls like very specific examples of like feelings. And I think a lot of us sometimes feel misunderstood through life and feel like sometimes people aren't there for us, but music can be. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's done for me. She's always been there for me, whether like through thick and thin.
1: Uh, and she's also a, a great writer, too, and performer, Absolutely. right? Like it, You've got great... Artists sometimes who are great performers, but they don't write the songs. She does all of it, right? She
5: does. And she is quite the performer. She did a her set alone, excluding her opening acts, was three and a half hours long.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, you're getting your money's worth there, right?
5: Absolutely. And by the time, like halfway through, we're all singing and dancing and screaming. And notice how I didn't say singing. We were yeah. screaming. <laughs> screaming. And, you know, we're all sitting there. We're like, how is she doing it? Because her transitions are very, very short. Mm -hmm. There's not a moment where she's really off of that stage.
1: So, uh, and I was reading somewhere, you know, people obviously want to, you have to go to the bathroom. It's a three and a half, four hour show. (laughs) Uh, And people actually have a general sense of the set list. Like, did you pick? the time when you had to leave out to go to the bathroom or do you know buy merchandise or anything like that I
5: did I chose during um, folklore because it was I love that album but I was like the lineups are short at this point because most of the people are in the stadium and yeah. have gotten their merch <laughs> so I was on I was in like the 300 section and mm-hmm. I saw that at the very bottom of this uh, stadium the big merch table was empty so I ran down those uh-huh. flights of stairs Got my merch for me and my friend and then ran back up and only missed two-and-a-half songs, which I think is pretty incredible.
1: People do, uh, when I was reading, people do really choose among that set list as, as to when I'm going to take a bathroom break or when you're yeah, going to go buy some merch, go some, right?
5: Yeah, get some water, because, you know, like it is a three-and-a-half-hour set, and, you know, I will say, like you could still hear her yeah. from there, and like there was um, some spots that you could still see the stage and everything, because even like that stadium was full, you should have seen the outside of Lumen Field. There was a crowd singing, dancing, in merch, too, and, like, dressed up as if they were right there.
1: So there's a huge crowd outside. Yeah. Oh, they could have done a third night, probably. She
5: definitely, you know what? She could do a whole week, and I don't think it would be enough. A (laughs) bunch of us would go again.
1: Really? (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So uh, I know she did speak uh, directly uh, to the crowd, obviously, and Mm -hmm. and, uh, had a message for them as well. Let's take a listen.
4: My goal is that after tonight, you think about the memories that we made here tonight on this beautiful Saturday night.
1: That uh, special relationship That she has built With those fans its And I, I can't explain it But it—but you can just tell I can, tell, uh, you, can yeah, you would know But I, I've watched a, a lot of the concerts today Just on YouTube And it, I'm amazed At the connect, just the connection That she has With those fans
5: Absolutely Like she's done the work And she's always left us Like little Easter eggs To let us know what she kind of wants to do next and you know we've told her what song should have gotten music videos and we told her why wasn't this a single or why'd you do that with your merch like she Mm -hmm. definitely listens to us and she's put in the work for years she did at one point a 13 hour meet and greet with fans she's had them over to listen to the album before it's ever come out and baked them treats and like had listening parties with them and it definitely She always does feel like she's speaking to you directly. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure she was there just for me. You know, there wasn't another, like, thousand people in the crowd or anything.
1: Were there a lot of dads who were dragged along or went along? Like, I saw, like, there was a lot of this phenomenon about dads taking their daughters (laughs) and just being there. Did you see a lot of that?
5: I did. And you know what? Um, We ran into somebody from Vancouver, Mm -hmm. a dad who had brought his 14-year-old daughter across the border and was going to the Sunday night show. And had already taken his daughter to the merch line. And had it all planned out. He had an outfit. She had an outfit. And uh, we gave her the... Um, one of the things that had been going on on this tour is that we had built friendship bracelets. Like the kind of ones that you would make at camp. Because mm-hmm. like, it references a lyric. So all the Swifties have been trading friendship bracelets like with each other. And we gave him the extra ones that we didn't get to trade. And you should have seen how... Happy he was that he could give his 14 year old daughter this because it was her Christmas present. Oh. And it was just all of us getting to like getting along and like it was there was lots of dads but you know what they were all excited to be there and I saw some of them singing along.
1: That's great. They knew,
5: the, they knew the lyrics, and I'm very proud of that. You,
1: then, now you know why. There's, you know, the, this concert tour has the potential to gross a billion dollars for the first time ever, and which is just phenomenal when you think about that. So it is absolutely crazy. Talia, thank you. Thank you,
5: yes. We always
1: talk about what a Swifty you are, but I'm so happy for you because <laughs> I knew you were quite pumped for many, many months when you got the tickets and to go and... And you had such a fabulous time. I'm very happy for you.
5: It's been a long time coming, <laughs> Jazz. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: That's our Talia Miller, producer here at CKNW, and our Chief Swifty correspondent, as we like to call her. We've had a lot of conversation about policing, specifically about what is happening in Surrey over the last little while, but many people are hoping that the Surrey policing issue will lead to a broader question. Is it time to ditch the RCMP for a BC police force? The provincial government has made much of the RCMP's lack of boots on the ground and a variety of challenges the national force faces, but is it serious about provincial policing? Joining me now to talk about the issue is Rob Shaw, a political correspondent for Czech News in Victoria. Rob, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, when we uh, were in the midst, and I guess we're still in the midst of this Surrey conversation, but the, this last round, uh, uh, when Mike Farnworth came out, the, the minister and said, look, uh, he's suggesting the, that the Surrey continue to move forward. Uh, the council move forward with the Surrey police service. Um, there's been much talk about a provincial uh, police force. Did you buy uh, by the argument that, look, this is something the government would be looking at um, in a serious manner right from, right from the beginning?
0: It's a tough one because, you know, you can have legitimate points about the RCMP. It's understaffing, it's inability to recruit, the fact more people are retiring or leaving than it is training in depot, uh, it's, you know, uh, impact on small communities and specialized units. You can believe all of government's arguments on why the RCMP isn't doing well at the same time as question whether government actually wants to get rid of the RCMP. And I think that that was kind of the question we're left with after Surrey, is that if this department, if we can't rely on the RCMP to police the fastest growing and almost largest city in the province, second largest in Surrey, without a province-wide public safety emergency, how can we rely on, on them to police the whole province in our, in our provincial policing contract? And I don't think the New Democrats really thought that far ahead, they wanted to use the RCMP as a as a um valid uh, criticism to make their their decision in Surrey but the the kind of ramifications of it are they they've so thoroughly managed to paint the RCMP as kind of under stress and beleaguered that now we're all wondering well why do why are we sticking with them everywhere else and I, I'm not sure the government's up to answer that question yet
1: mhm mhm um, and I, uh, when you look at the RCMP it's amazing what we ask of them, uh, and not that it's mm-hmm. an excuse, but you want them to be involved in big city policing. In the case of Surrey, we want them to do small town policing, which they do in on in, in the interior, in the north. We expect them to be charge of, uh, you know, have a, a, a people dealing with cybersecurity, national security, white collar crime. It, it, it's a force that's pulled in so many different directions. Yet, and we want local accountability. Yet. It's a paramilitary organization that ultimately is based in Ottawa. So it's almost um, impossible, one could argue, for it to succeed moving forward.
0: Yeah, and that's why the Prime Minister said he's doing this review of the RCMP, to see if it should stay in contract policing or become that specialized FBI of the North model of cybersecurity and terrorism and kind of those type of units. And our government, you know, Premier David Eby said, well, let's, We need clarity from Ottawa um, on whether they're going to allow the RCMP to keep contracting with provinces first. And I don't, I think that's a little bit misleading because if we don't want to continue with the RCMP here, if our province has decided that it can't solve the staffing issues, that it's pulled in too many directions, that we need a provincial police force, we can get out of our contract. The provincial RCMP contract goes to 2032. It takes two years notice to get out. Um, it's just a question of whether this government actually wants to create a provincial police force for BC and have more accountability, have that local connection, uh, and it's going to be a massive job, like enormous. It'll be expensive. It'll take time. Um, and I'm not entirely sure this government has the interest or the will or the political bandwidth to accomplish it. And so it's blaming Ottawa kind of right now. and saying, well, the prime minister has to be clear on the future of all the things the RCMP does. I mean, I don't think that's the question. I think the question is, does the provincial government, does our province want a provincial police force, as has been recommended by experts and MLAs from all three parties? And if we do, should we start working on it now, rather than waiting for whatever's coming
1: from Ottawa? And I think we forget that. I mean, reality is you're right. We can move right now if we wanted to. The question is, do you A, have the uh, people to deal with this mammoth task? Is that where you want to spend uh, your political capital, one, it's a very big uh, issue. Two, do you have the dollars to pay for a provincial police force? Yes, there may be a few dollars coming from Ottawa for the transition, but the reality is it's your toy now and you better be able to fund it. So it's a huge new bureaucracy you're creating, significant challenges, and I'm not sure the will is there for this NDP government right now after the, this, this many years in the office to say, you know what, that's something we want to fight on um, because they probably think they can win, a, win the next election on many other issues, not policing.
0: Yeah, policing. Reforming the RCMP wasn't in the last two NDP election platforms, wasn't in Premier David Eby's leadership bid, wasn't in his first 100 days of action. It's only appeared as a political tool to make the argument and decision they wanted to make in Surrey. And, you know, so there isn't a lot of you know, interest from the EB government in making this move. And the other complicating factor is municipalities outside of Surrey and maybe the lower mainland, municipalities generally kind of like the RCMP. The formula they have right now is very expensive, to, you know, unless you're under 5,000 population, um, but they, they tend to like it. And the Union of BC Municipalities wrote a letter to Ottawa this month saying, hey, your review on, on the RCMP, just to let you know, our municipalities want them to stay. So the province would be slightly off base a little bit with with the bulk of municipalities and it would have to make sure the number one issue would be is a provincial police force in bc going to cost more for municipalities who kick in a share based on their population and if if it is then you're going to have a ton of angry councils being like we can't afford this it's already one of the biggest line items in our provincial in our municipal budget what are you what are you doing downloading these costs and i think one of the considerations the bc government's thinking is if ottawa does announce they want the RCMP out of contract policing. They'll put money on the table for the provinces to help them uh, transition to provincial police forces, and that would help municipalities who eventually have to pay. I think that's part of why they're they're waiting to see what happens.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, look, there's plenty of other uh, RCMP detachments uh, in the Lower Mainland still. You think uh, you think Langley, you think um, Burnaby, you think the North Shore, yeah. but how much of a um, existential challenge do you think? surrey moving to the sps is to the rcmp broadly to the culture of the rcmp uh, and just uh, the image of the rcmp
0: well it might have been uh, you know i think the original decision was a little bit more of a of a kind of existential challenge it's gone on so long now that everyone just wants it done <laughs> and it, it doesn't even you know it's kind of like all right well whatever like make your choice i think there is a bigger conversation we haven't had about regional policing Separate from a new provincial police force, should we be moving in the direction of regional policing in Metro Vancouver, as many, many, many people have recommended experts over the years? And if we are, does it make more sense to to have municipal forces that the province controls ultimately through the cities to regionalize them rather than the RCMP? That, that, that is, you know, a, we haven't had that conversation either. Um, and it might make more sense to be doing that right now as well, because um, you're right, we're going to end up with a we are in a hodgepodge. Of different municipalities, and um, some are mounties, some are municipal, and it doesn't doesn't work that well. I mean, it works. No one's saying that it doesn't. It doesn't, you know, produce policing. It just doesn't produce maybe the kind of um, integrated policing that we're really looking for. Uh, And that's not a conversation you hear from this government either, mainly because they're worried of ticking municipalities off, much like the previous Liberal government. You don't force policing down the throats of local governments and, uh, unless you want to make an enemy for life of that local government, as we're seeing playing out in Surrey, and uh, becomes a headache that the province doesn't want to have.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Hey, final question for you. since I got you here. Um, are the NDP at all concerned uh, uh, broadly about people's views or perceptions of them, the government itself in Surrey? Because it plays such an overarching it has such an overarching impact on provincial politics. It's a large city and growing even more so, but it's important politically. Um, Is there any worry on their part on how this whole SPS, RCMP thing has been unfolding? Are they pretty confident so far the way it's going?
0: Well, I think that was a big concern at the beginning because Syria is so important politically for this government. You know, They have uh, four cabinet ministers there, seven MLAs, uh, and they want to make sure they're on the right side of the issue. But as it dragged on and became more and more complicated and complex and and kind of difficult for people to understand, I think the government is more calculating that they will simply get political credit here for being leaders and decisive, stepping in, solving the issue, ending the debate, moving on to other priorities, letting, you know, council talk about other things. And that, that seems to be what they think is going to carry the day at this point, rather than, well, there's a big camp of, pro um, you know, RCMP in this riding and this MLA is going to have to mitigate that. Um, you know, that, that may have been the starting point of the political discussion, but the end point is we think people are just going to be happy this is done. And and that, because uh, no one totally really understands the full scope of Surrey politics, you know, at, at every level, I don't think any party does. And, and uh, so I don't, I don't think they're too worried about trying to split that hair at this point. Um, when no one's really sure where it lands.
1: That is for sure. Well, let's see uh, how things transpire over the next few weeks, that's for sure. Rob, thanks for your time once again.
3: Okay, take care.
1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.